Right. Y'all hear me okay? As the old TV cliche goes, can you hear me now? (laughs) Such a blessing to have you all here today. I do want to remind you, which I didn't remind anybody on Sunday, but I'm trying to remind everybody on Sunday that's still signed up to go to Israel. You need to get all of these forms sent to Inspire Travel. Get them there. The trip itself is March the 9th through the uh, 20th of March, which is a a 12-day trip. We added one day to the trip. Uh, wasn't our adding the uh, uh, travel agency had to, had to add it to give us better prices, actually. Can you imagine? We had one more day and we'd pay better price. Well, they know what they're doing, I guess. But anyway, want to get that going because we need to get you all signed up and registered. I need to find out, actually, how many are really going. So if you made a commitment to do it and you're working on it, that's wonderful. But you need to let Inspire Travel know so they'll let me know that you're going. Okay. And uh, right now, it's from, uh, from all I can tell, there's a lot of wonderful things happening in Israel, as well as some uh, very insightful things happening in Israel that uh, go right along with everything that we've been studying in the book of Revelation over the last, I don't know how many months we've been doing it, almost a year, I guess. So we, we, uh, we're excited about, about that. So... Uh, I'm, I'm almost considering that we're going to be having a, a prophecy tour when we go in March. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping to keep that focus uh, for us. And when we go to places, we're going to deal not only with the locations that we're going to, but we're also going to deal with the prophetic issues uh, as we get to those places. So if that really interests you, please sign up and save your money. Don't rob any banks, but, uh, you know... Uh, do whatever you can. You know, trust the Lord because a lot of times, and, and I've heard this before, you know, some people say, you know, I trusted the Lord and somehow, you know, I, I had what I needed to go. So uh, it's a wonderful trip. Really want you all to really think about going. All right, let's turn to Revelation chapter 10. Now, I know it says 5 through 11, and we're all going to study those verses. We're going to complete the chapter tonight. But it's been a couple of weeks since we were in chapter 10, so I want to kind of give a little review because it's really important to keep this chapter together. Now, we have gone through the uh, trumpet judgments, and these were heavy, heavy heavy-duty judgments, what we were dealing with in in the previous chapters, uh, in particular chapters 8 and 9. The judgments have just gotten heavier. Much more devastation is going to be happening within those seven-year period, those, that seven-year period that we call the Great Tribulation, or the, the Tribulation, and then the Great Tribulation, which is the middle of those seven years, three and a half years, to the end of those seven years. And there, there's, no, there's no place here for the church. The church has done what it's been called to do. It's gone home. Jesus has taken the church home. Why? Because he is wanting to deal directly with Israel. You might say, well, who's going to tell them about Jesus? The 144,000. We're going to be getting to that next time. So understand that, you know, there's, there's, there's reason in what the Lord does in providing us with this scenario that <clears throat> when the time comes for, tri- for tribulation and great tribulation, it is to prepare Israel to once again be the kingdom of God in the sense of where Jesus comes to reign, which is in Jerusalem. But it's also a time to judge those who have rejected the Messiah, those who have rejected the message of the gospel. God's not judging that way today. When we read John 3:16 and 17, what, did this, what, is it, what does it say? <laughs> Sorry, my mouth's all messed up. What does it say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The first coming. And we're waiting for the second coming. The second coming is going to be totally different. 
In between that time, there is that moment of time where Jesus comes not to the earth, but to in the clouds to receive the church. John 14. To receive us, that where He is, there we will also be. And He's speaking to His believers, His church. And then, of course, the tribulation began, chapter 4 of Revelation. That's all we've been dealing with so far. So there's a pause now. A pause comes in chapter 10. Before we get to the seventh trumpet, we've gone through these trumpet judgments. They've been extremely heavy, uh, painful, I mean, and then very vivid as far as the, 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 the signs that we see happening in the, and, and, and even the, uh, uh, the descriptions that John is giving. So we get to... Verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. We talked about his identification last time. We'll talk about it in just a moment. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. And now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, that's the seventh trumpet, which will come in chapter 11, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. <clears throat> now, in our last study in chapter 10, we sought to identify the angel, considered his actions, and we wanted to understand his assertions. In other words, his declarations. What was he saying and why? All within the first four verses of this chapter. What we discovered was that this is not Jesus, this angel as some commentators have believed. The use of the word alos, which is the word for another, is different than the one that is used to make a distinction. So it is the same kind. And we pointed back to an an angel in chapter 5, a mighty angel, so the same kind. He had reference to that. Uh, but the angel is described using the terms that describe Jesus in previous chapters, right? We saw them in the first few verses. Rainbow around his head, comes with the clouds, voice like a lion, that proceeds forth with voices of, su- of the thunder that are from that. Uh, his face like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. And we came to realize that these descriptions were certainly reminding us of the presence of God, the pillars of fire. What he said to the children of Israel as they were going through the wilderness, he said, I will be with you as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So these are all descriptions of things that would remind us that God was going to be present with those who believe in him. And then also it made us consider that when you spend a considerable amount of time with Jesus, you'll certainly take on his characteristics. So these angels who come from heaven, the mighty angels, took on the characteristics of the the Lord. But there was reason for that again. There was reason for that because it was to represent Jesus in this particular sense. Yet the voice of the Lord is the one that voices forth with thunders, as we saw in in Psalm chapter 29. So I'll get to that and you can look it up later because we, we saw that pretty clearly last week. What we didn't spend too much time on, we will today. And that is with the little open book. 
or the open little book in the hand of the angel. And obviously the little book has more information about end-time prophetic events, I'm sure, because that's what we're dealing with. And as I said previously, the representative angel, again, representative of the presence of, of God, but an angel nonetheless, the representative angel is given the responsibility to make the formal assertion or declaration, as it were, of Christ's right to rule and to reign over all creation. Now, one thing to add to that would be that the angel putting on the, you know, putting one foot in the sea and the other on the land could mean that he is proclaiming Christ's control over all the Gentile nations. When you see the word sea, and we're going to deal with this later on in, in, the, in the later chapters of the book of Revelation, but when you see the term the sea, you're not just talking about the fact that we're dealing with just, let's say, the Mediterranean Sea or, or any of the oceans, but it's descriptive. Descriptive of a lot of people. And we can be very general and say that the sea is just talking about the masses of all creation of all people. Or we could be even more specific as we get more into the book of Revelation and as we tie these things into all the prophecies that go back all the way to the, uh, to, actually to the early books and, and, and from Genesis on that tie in with the thought that we have today a real connection with Islam. All the nations that will be judged directly by Jesus when He comes to this earth are Muslim nations. Now we'll deal with that more later, but it's something you need to think about. Then when you see the sea, you're talking about the multitude that is surrounding Israel and a multitude that does not appreciate, love, or care for Israel. We've seen that already in history. We will see it more in the days to come. So it is as if the foot on the sea and the other on the land could mean that he's proclaiming Christ's control over all the Gentile nations, the sea, as well as the land of Israel. So that's, that's just another way to look at what's happening. But generally speaking, it's, it's actually Christ's control over all things. And we touched upon that last time. So that's just something to think about. But what we can say for sure is that the little book is indeed the Word of God. The little book is indeed the Word of God in that God's Word is what governs the course of human history. If we're dealing with the course of human history as we're looking at the book of Revelation, as it is opening up for us the mystery of what has been hidden for, for ages to past to, for us to be able to see what's going to happen in the future, then we realize it is the Word of God that is so not only relevant, but it is reliable and it is accurate. The nations that are mentioned in the scriptures are not just any nations. There are mentions of nations uh, in, in general. All the nations of the, of the earth will be judged by God. All nations will be judged by God. But there are certain nations that are mentioned by name that will be judged by God directly because of their relation to God's people and their relation to Israel. And they exist today. And we're going we're gonna to get to some of those as we go along in, in the book of Revelation. The roar of a lion uh, that brought about the sound of seven thunders is a message of conquest and it is a message of certain victory. Is Jesus going to win eventually? Well, yes, because we've, if, if you've read the last page, you know we did. But if you've read the first page... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know He's going to win anyway. Because He created all things. And as I said, almost four years ago, when we started the book of Genesis, and I said, if you believe the first four words of Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God, you can believe all the rest to the end of Revelation. Because God's word is true. And there are no contradictions. There are no mistakes in the Word of God. 
God wasn't haphazard in presenting any pages to us. Every word is necessary. Every word is true. So the thunders that we were talking about last time give glory to God for His power over all the earth as we saw last time in Psalm 29. Again, I would refer you to that. If you weren't here last week, go look it up. It's, it's just a short psalm. But uh, verses 3 through 9, I believe, have this, this thing about the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord in the waters, the voice of the Lord, and so on and so forth. And this is what, is, what we relate to this statement here in Revelation 10. Well, that power that we're dealing with extends beyond the natural wonders to the supernatural workings of God in and through history. So it isn't, you know, we, we can't just settle on natural things. We have to settle on the supernatural. Because God is supernatural. He is over and above all that is created. So when He works, He works in creation, but He works above it all too. That's why He can see the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. And that's why we have what is already happening, though it was written 2,000 years ago. And be, and and beyond that 3,000 years ago, maybe even four, when you, if you take all the prophecies all the way back to the book of Genesis. But as we see in verse 4, getting back to verse 4, even in the book of Revelation, in the book of, of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which is this book we're studying, some things do remain unknown. We can't know everything. I mean, even, even in the revealing, there are some things we're not going to understand. And if anybody tells you, oh man, they can understand and, every, and give you an answer for everything, I don't think so. I don't understand everything either. I'm, I'm trying to learn along with you. I've got to find out what's going on here. We have to study deep into what, what the scriptures are giving us. But, but one thing that's for sure, some things remain unknown. You read Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord. But what is, whatever is revealed is going to be a blessing to us if we read it. But even if we don't understand everything, it's okay. God has it in, under control. The secret things do belong to the Lord. There are some things that we will never know in this life. I know, and I know that sometimes we've often sat, sat back and we say, Well, I can't wait to get to heaven because in heaven I'll know everything. Well, I think that in heaven there's... I don't think we have to know everything. We have to know one thing. Jesus is real and true. And we'll be before Him forever. I am not going to be pondering whether I can truly and fully understand Samson. I was reading about Samson today in the Scriptures. I kept thinking, Lord, how could you love this guy? And then I looked in the mirror and I said, Oh, yeah, right. Well, how could you love me? You know. Okay, now I think I can try to understand. I'm not going to try to understand. You see, I can try to understand, but I can't understand. But that's okay. So there are some things we'll never know in this life. And I think you'll agree with me that while not knowing oftentimes seems to confuse or maybe to frustrate us, sometimes it's good not knowing some things. Don't you agree? Sometimes it's just good not knowing some things. I don't have to know everything. I just need to know that Jesus is on the throne. That, that's, that, you know, the things I do need to know, Lord, please help me to understand them. But I don't need to know everything. Do you know that not knowing things keeps us humble? Not knowing things keeps us humble. And what is it that the Lord wanted us to, to be? Humble. Not knowing things keeps us humble. I mean, thinking we know everything and having all the answers can puff us up with pride. We must depend on the Lord. Not knowing everything really makes us depend upon the Lord, who knows everything, by the way. Not knowing also keeps us moving in the direction of trusting the Lord through each trial and tribulation and temptation and tragedy that we face. I want you to remember something. It's in Psalm 103, verse 7. I'm just, I'm just a little off the path, if you don't mind, just for a little bit. It won't take long. But here it says, He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. He made known His ways to Moses. Now Moses, you have to remember, Moses was intimate with God, wasn't he? Moses was intimate with God. 
I mean, when the children of Israel are all parked, you know, around the Mount Sinai, and they're all, now, they're all down there waiting. When's Moses coming down? Maybe he's dead. Maybe something happened to him. Maybe he got bit by a, you know, a snake or something or whatever. Well, we haven't seen Moses. He's up there. Moses was intimate with God. He was just worshiping the Lord. And God had him there. And what did the Lord do, as we see in the psalm? He revealed His ways. In other words, He revealed His whys. W-H-Y-S. I don't think we have to apostrophe it. W-H-Y-S. His whys. Why? What's the question we always ask when things happen and we don't understand? Por qué? Why? Why, Lord? When we're intimate with the Lord, He reveals His whys. And sometimes His wives, His whys are, are, are pretty much just real. Like, you don't need to know. You just need to know me. In other words, it's always better to be intimate with the Lord than to merely be instructed I want to know more. I want to know more. Just a more, you know, this thing about just wanting to know more. So I can have more knowledge than somebody else. No, no, no. Get intimate with God. Get intimate with Jesus. Get intimate with His Word. We may not understand everything, but He'll reveal His, why, his ways and His whys. You can know the works of God. Anybody can read the Bible, right? You can know the works of God... It's better to know the ways of God. I I just wanted to kind of give you that little devotional today. It's better to know the ways of God than just the works of God. So with that in mind, let's let's continue in our study. uh, Verse 5 now. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. He's about to make a sworn statement. That looked like what they tell you in court. You know, raise raise your right hand. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Now I know that in the King James Version it says something to the effect about time coming to an end. Right? Something like that for those who have King James. Okay, that's, that's a little misleading. Not, not, not misleading that it was written that way. It's just, you get the idea that all of a sudden time stops. That's not the idea. The idea is that, he, that there should be delay no longer. Y'all remember taking those three-hour tests at school? Y'all remember that? Uh, teachers, y'all remember giving those? Yeah, just recently, I'm sure. Three-hour test. There comes that time when you're looking at that clock and then it's three hours up and you press the button on your chronograph and you say to everyone, put your pencils down. you got to stop. That's what this means. Delay no longer. Okay, so you got the picture? Verse 7. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now, there are many mysteries revealed in God's word. For example, the ultimate conversion of the Jewish people is called a mystery. Back a couple of, well, maybe a year or so ago, we were studying the book of Romans here on Wednesday night. And in Romans eleven twenty-five, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part, here's the mystery, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the full, fullness of the Gentiles has come. They will be blind until the fullness of the Gentiles is come, and then their eyes will be open. So that's the mystery that uh, Paul is, is speaking of. The ultimate conversion of the Jewish people. And he goes on to talk about that. He says, all Israel will be saved. Okay, so we're not here to talk about that. But... I'm just talking about mystery. I mean, they're, they're throughout the scripture. Take, for example, God's purpose for the church. 
God's purpose for the church is called a mystery. Ephesians 3 verse 3. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. As I have uh, briefly written already. And then he goes down to verse 6 and he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. When we think about the gospel, the gospel is to be preached to whom? The gospel is to be pre- or the church. Well, you know, the, the makeup of the church is to be, I'm getting ahead of myself. The makeup of the church is to be the Jews and the Gentiles, not just the Jews. So the, the, the door has been opened to all. We saw that in Romans chapter 1. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, right? Okay, so that's the mystery that was, reveal, uh, that was hidden at one time, now it's revealed. Okay, so that's how mysteries work. And then there is the mystery of the living presence of Jesus in the believer. That's a mystery. And Paul calls it that in Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. When he says to them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, notice, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, and, the, and the mention of the Gentiles really to the Jewish mind says, well, even the Gentiles? Yes, even the Gentiles. Christ will be in them. When He gave us His Holy Spirit, what did He say? My Spirit is going to come alongside of you. My Spirit is going to come upon you. My Spirit is going to come in you. Alongside, upon, and in. It's a mystery. And so, it is something that was hidden at at, at one point, but now it's been revealed. The gospel itself is called the mystery of Christ. That's what I was trying to say a little while ago. Uh, but the gospel itself is called the mystery. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. For which I am also in chains. Why is he in chains? Because he's been going around preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was at one time a mystery. Because the mystery was, well, who's the Messiah? We know who the Messiah is now. It's Yeshua. He's the Messiah. Jesus. It's a mystery. It was a mystery, but it's not a mystery any longer. So now, the mystery, getting back to Revelation 10, the mystery being revealed here is the kingdom of God on earth. The mystery being revealed here is the kingdom of God on earth. Beginning with Isaiah all the way through Malachi. So you can take Isaiah, who was one of the major prophets, and then going all the way through Malachi and, and many others, uh, uh, which are called the minor prophets, only minor because their books are, sh- are smaller, or their letters or their prophecies are smaller. Uh, you know, Isaiah was long, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, those are called the major prophets. And then all the rest, uh, Hosea, all the way down to Malachi, are, are the minor prophets. But uh, beginning with Isaiah all the way through Malachi, God's prophets gave major space to the coming of the literal kingdom of God on earth with Messiah ruling where? There's a test later. Jerusalem. Yerushalayim. In the city of Zion. Where's the, where's, where's the, the temple mount? In Jerusalem. Okay. So, so we, we, we... Yeah, good to see you tonight. It's so nice to have you here. It's good to hear from you too. Alright, so here we go. It's the literal, literal kingdom of God on earth. See, I really struggle with so many people today who discount Israel. They just say, there is no Israel any longer. The real Israel today is the church. No, that's called uh, replacement theology, and it's not biblical. I'm sorry, but it's not. What are you going to do with all of the prophecies that have been written about Israel? And then, what are you going to do with, with Romans 9 through 11? Paul made it very clear. They're still in Israel. And God's going to raise it up. And He's going to do it there where He gave them the land and where He loves the city of Zion. Where Mount Moriah is. Where Abraham took Isaac under the direction of God to sacrifice him, to give us the picture of the Father sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins. The place where David, you know, would be born in the same area, just down the hill, 
When you go to Israel, you get to go down to the city of David, just down the hill from, from Jerusalem. But it's all there, compact together. You ever seen that psalm? I think it's Psalm 48. Psalm 48 in your Bibles, you know, talks about the city of, 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 of Zion. It's, it's a beautiful for situation. Uh, just a beautiful psalm. Read it. Okay, Psalm 48, that's your homework. All right, but, it, but, it, but see, that's the thing. Why would he mention all of this and say, okay, there's no more Israel? Ya vamos. No more. Why? No, they're very much alive. As a matter of fact, God brought them back into the land and established them as a nation once again in May of 1948. And on the the next day, they were already fighting to stay alive. And that's biblical too. The nation was born out of the Holocaust. It was born out of the fires of the Holocaust. And we can see pictures of that in the scriptures. So, yes, it's a mystery. But God's revealing it, you see. So another way of stating this mystery is God's plan being revealed to restore the Jewish kingdom under Yeshua and being made known to all. Not just to the Jews. But to all. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 is typical of that. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Almighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government. Went too far. Of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forever, e- or forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You read all around these prophecies, and where is it all taking place? In Israel, and especially in Jerusalem. Well, these same prophets, from Isaiah all the way to Malachi, these same prophets often spoke of Messiah coming to do something that we, we might think was, was kind of weird or strange. And certainly the, the Jewish people still struggle with this. It's Isaiah 53. But in Isaiah 53 verses 3 and 4 it says, He is despised, as despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. I, I emphasize Him. Because again, the Jewish people don't say that, they don't want to believe that this is about Yeshua. What they will say is, no, this is about the suffering Jewish people. But if that's the case, then they've got their, they've got their genders wrong here, their spiritual genders wrong. Because you know, when you see, when it, it talks about Israel, even though Israel is, an, is, is a male name, nonetheless, Israel is treated like the wife of God. <laughs> More or less on that, on, on that line. Just like the church is like the wife, you know, the, the, the bride of Christ. Israel is the bride of God, you know, in that sense. It's very clear him is about a person. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. John himself would say at the beginning of his gospel, He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Yet to as many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God. To as many as believe in his name, both Jew and Gentile. Well, that part of the mystery is solved when we understand the two distinct comings of Messiah Jesus. I've already kind of referred to that earlier. But He came first to suffer and to die. He'll come a second time to rule and to reign. And to add to that, we have to say He also comes to judge. But He comes to rule and He comes to reign. Now, the mystery of the King... To rule his kingdom on earth is revealed in the scriptures generally and in the book of Revelation of Jesus specifically. Now, what should we make of the delay that we mentioned in verse 6? What should we make of that delay? I've kind of already referred to it a little bit. But first of all, the angel gives a solemn oath. Remember, he raises his head. And by the way, you can go to uh, uh, Daniel chapter 12 and you can see there as well 
one that raises his hand at the same time. So sometimes that's called a man, but it's, it's just a, it's, it's talking about a, a, a character who also does raise his hands, and that was also done as an oath. So what we see here in connection to that is that this angel gives a solemn oath declaring that the ends of all things or the end of all things is irreversibly and permanently set in motion. The end is now set in motion. There shall be no delay any longer. There shall be no delay anymore. There have been delays already, but now put your pencils down. Something stops because the end is here. There is no turning back on what is to take place. God's final judgment is coming. And folks, I can tell you that without wearing a sandwich board around me, you know, like the old guys, they used to go out and say, the world is coming to an end, the world is coming to an end. And, you know, they, they were always made fun of. And, but you know what? So were the prophets. So were the prophets. The prophets were made fun of. What did the prophets do? They did what God told them to do. Go tell the people that they have been disobedient and they have been rejecting my truth and they have become rebellious. And if they don't get straightened out and repent of those sins, I'll have to judge them. And the prophets went out and did that. And what what happened? What was the result? If they didn't laugh at 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 the prophets, they killed the prophets. Read the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. They would kill the prophets. So, there's no turning back. God's final judgment is coming. It's coming. You don't think that the climate of the world today is no indication that judgment is to come? The decline of, 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 of real spiritual, true spirituality from the standpoint of biblical spirituality, true understanding of the Spirit of God, true understanding of the things of God, true understanding of, of, of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the blood of Christ and the resurrection, all of that. All of that is being rejected wholesale by the world. We're finding ourselves to be smaller pockets and pockets of true believers in Jesus Christ and true believers of the Word of God. And you don't think that with, with, with that going on and the Lord saying, the time's coming, people are rejecting me. What did we see here in the judgments of the, the trumpet judgments that we saw? People were rejecting the Lord. And, 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 you know, for the most part, everybody says, oh, we don't believe in God. But yet, what were they doing? And what will they be doing when, when the time comes? They're going to be cursing God. Hey, I thought you didn't believe in Him. But they're going to be cursing God because He's bringing them pain and suffering because He said, I'm going to judge you. Unless you repent, and if you repent, even if you lose your life for my sake, at least you'll be with me. Like the tribulation saints. Uh, So as we've seen, even, even during the tribulation period, sinners will have a chance to repent. But there is coming a day when judgment will be complete. There is a day. God is not going to just set it aside and say, oh, well... Yeah, I'll put a little judgment out there, but, you know, I'm going to kind of just be merciful. Okay, everybody come to heaven. No, 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 then God would not be God. Because, first of all, God is faithful to His Word. So we need to realize that. I I don't understand what, what some of the church is doing today, thinking that, you know, they can redefine who God is. And redefine who God says He is. And redefine what God does and what He doesn't do. But the Bible tells me from Genesis to Revelation that God never changes. He is immutable. And in in Hebrews 13 verse 8, it tells us Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. So His Word is not going to change. And there is coming a day when judgment will be complete. So consider this. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. You all know this verse. Or at least you should. And if you don't know it, know it today. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some count slackness, but His long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should come to repentance. What a merciful God we have! You know, we see people that just don't love the Lord. We want to get rid of them. Lord, judge them, you know. We want to be like the disciples, you know, when, when, when one city, you know, rejected Jesus, they said, Lord, just call down fire from heaven. Just destroy those people. Come on. Jesus came to die for those people. Merciful. 
He came not to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But notice this, but the day of the Lord will come. What is that telling us? Yes, he's merciful, but there is coming a day when you've got to put your pencils down. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Yes, there's going to be tremendous judgment. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. Notice he doesn't say what you should be doing at the end time. He says right now, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be today? That's... That's the implication. What manner of persons ought you to be right now, today, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening, or hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. He says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What kind of persons ought we to be now because I tell you this the one thing we don't know is when God's when when Christ is coming because the scriptures tell us clearly no one knows the day or the hour we should know the times and guess what we're living in the times of the signs and we're living in the signs in the time of the signs of the times that's a mouthful I don't want to say that again okay so, the delay then of the second coming of Jesus, and you've got to look at it this way, the delay of the second coming of Jesus allowed most of us here to become believers. We ought to be thankful for that delay. Remember I talked not too many weeks ago about that, that bow and arrow? He's just pulling back being merciful and merciful, bringing more people into the kingdom. But at some point, he's going to let go. And judgment's going to come. And we cannot say God is not fit. We cannot say that, that God is unfair. He's given us plenty of warning. And by the way, plenty of time. Thousands of years. In the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, 4, in the fullness of time, Christ came. At the right moment, at the right second, Jesus was born on this earth for that very purpose. Through the line of David, as was predicted in the very beginning. But there is coming a day very soon when Jesus will delay no longer. Our generation, by the way, sees signs more clearly than any previous generation. And everything is getting into place and... We can actually say now everything is in place. Nothing really has to happen anymore for Jesus to come for his church, number one. But once that does happen, then begins the time, which is called the day of the Lord, which is the extension of this seven-year period of time. So we get to verses 8 through 10 now. And it says, uh, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. John is told to take this little book that is in the hand of this mighty angel. And again, when we think about books, you know, we talk about the scrolls and the, you know, the, the, the lambskins that are used to write on those scrolls and they're rolled up and... And Jesus had a scroll in his hand. He was, the only, he was the only one worthy to open that scroll back, you know, back in chapter 4 and 5. And, uh, and it was a big book. But it was the, once it was open, it had the seven seals and the seven seals were open. And every seal was a, was a revealing of another judgment that was to come or was coming and is coming. 
but this is a, another little book. But this is a smaller scroll because that's the way the books were written in those days. So this little book that is in the hand of the mighty angel is taken by John. And, and, and again, I said earlier that the, the little book represents the scriptures, the word of God. Even though some want to equate this book with a scroll, which was found in Revelation 5, but it's not. It it, it was made distinct in the fact that it is a little book, not any of the the big book or the major book that that was opened by, by Jesus. But it is more than a strong suggestion to believe that this is the word of God that John is to take and to eat it. When you consider the, the way that scripture is written so that there are there are certain things that, that are written uh, in one place and they coincide with some other place. It's just consistency uh, of Scripture writing. And, and, and there is a consistency that we have to deal with. Because when we think about taking a scroll and eating it, we read in Ezekiel chapters uh, 2 and 3 that Ezekiel, the prophet, is commanded to eat a scroll. But it was the prophet Jeremiah... In Jeremiah 15, verse 16, who said, Your words were found, and I ate them. You see that? The consistency is that if there's a book found and given and told for a person to eat it, then that is symbolic. There is a little symbolism here. And we'll get to that in a moment. But the fact of the matter is, he says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Now, many would many laugh when they read of John eating the scriptures, right? I mean, it would be just, if I just stood up here today and I just, okay, well, excuse me, I've I got to take a little snack right now and, and start doing that. So you laughed. Well, some of you did. It wasn't that funny. <laughs> but, but then you get, you know, chewing on the paper, swallowing it down, you know. It's kind of an interesting Illustration, you know. Then swallowing it, that's the... You know. How many of you used to eat paper when you were kids? Nobody wants to admit it. Okay, a couple, of, a couple did. They're going to be blessed in heaven because they didn't lie. You know. Okay, I was just kidding. But the word eat, the word eat here in, in the Greek is, is, the, is the word katestio, katestio. K-A-T-E-S-T-H-I-O, katestio. And it means actually to devour and to eat down. Well, let me ask you a question. Haven't you heard someone say that they, de- they devoured a book when they went out to buy, you know, let's say a New York Times bestseller. Man, I got this bestseller and I just, I paid out to pay, I just devoured it. Well, that's the same word. You devour that book. In other words... John is being told to take the Word of God into his innermost being. And so are we. We are commanded to take the Word of God. Verse 11 is the reason. We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 11 is the reason. Jesus said it best. He said, Go ye into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. But when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, discipling, the word disciple is to teach. What are you going to teach them? The latest self-help book on the market? Or do we want to teach them the Word of God? How will we teach them the Word of God if we don't have the Word of God in us? Not just with us. The Bible. But when we read it, we are to consume it. To eat it. We're to eat it down. We're to devour it. Every page. The good thing is there's no calories. Only blessing. Only blessing. John is being told to take the Word of God into his innermost being, and we have been told to take God's Word 
into our innermost being. And so, as we take the Word of God into our hearts and into our minds, applying it to our lives, is it not sweet? Isn't the Word of God sweet? When we apply it, uh, okay, let me, let me remind you now, you've got to apply it. You've you got to take it and eat it and then apply it. Live it. And then it's sweet, isn't it? Why am I doing that? Because, you know, I don't know. God knows. I mean, he, you know. Some people used to say, hey, were you peeking into my house the other day when you were speaking? And you were peeking through the, you know, the blinds that you saw us doing. I said, no, I didn't see nothing. But God was there. And he gave me an understanding, a word of understanding, a word of wisdom. I said something. I didn't know who had to deal with it. But guess what? I guess it's you. You should have kept it to yourself. Now I know. <laughs> but God knows, you see. So God knows how you read the Bible. Don't impress me. I'm not here to be impressed. And I'm not here to impress you. We need to first and foremost be impressed by the love of Christ. We need to be impressed by the work of Christ on the cross, by the blood that was shed for our forgiveness, by the resurrection from the dead. We need to be impressed in that. And because we're impressed in that, then we need to be impressed in the wonders of God's Word and love it more than we love anything else in this life. Because the Word of God stands forever, the Bible says. The grass will all fade away, but the Word of God remains forever. And it's in you. If. (laughs) If. You get serious with it. Don't play games with God now. Can't play games with God. Love His Word. Love His Word. There are many blessings and promises of God that we can treasure and hold on to when we read it. I love it when some of you guys come up to me and just share something. Man, the Lord showed me this. I, oh, man, I get blessed, man. I say, can I, can I steal that from you? Because that blessing was so rich. I, I, I want that blessing too. And I get, I, I get excited, you know. Because I share with you guys all the time. And I just, I love what I do. But sometimes it's hard because I have to be hard. And I hope always at the end that I can also be encouraging. I never want to leave you like I've beaten you down. I'm going to beat you down here in just a minute. Then I'm going to love you. Kiss your wounds. (laughs) Because I love you too much not to tell you what the truth is. And not to encourage you to live by those very truths. Because they can only become blessings for you. For John and for us, it is like honey in our mouth. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. I've got to do this quick now, but I know you all know this, right? Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Isn't that beautiful? I just, I just think it's so beautiful about the Word of God. That's about this Word that we can eat and devour every day of our lives. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. You see, in keeping God's Word, there is great reward and there is great blessing. But if people refuse to keep God's Word, then there is judgment that will inevitably come. So as we begin to digest the things of God, we also see the consequences of disobedience. There is the message of judgment that is coming upon those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And folks, it is bitter. It's bitter when you realize what is going to happen to the lost. I think in these last days, we need, we need to have a, a, a greater sense of, of burden for the lost. For those who don't know Christ, realize that any day that Jesus can come and they will be lost in their sins. 
The summer is past and we are not saved. The unbeliever will say. Judgment is coming and, and thus your heart should be burned, should be burning for the unsaved. It should be a wake-up call to the reality of what we should do, which is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to point people to Jesus. Because, you know, even if they reject us, we are doing what God has called us to do. And there are times when we just share the love of Christ and people get it. Because God has prepared their hearts in many varied ways. Some people have watered, you planted maybe, someone watered, and the increase comes with somebody else, but the increase comes is what's, is what's important. That they have found Christ. That their lives are changed. You know, God hands us His Word, and we must take it into our lives. We must eat it, and we must devour it. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. He says, desire it. How many of us are desiring the Word of God every day? It's food, folks. A little baby, you know, born into this world, desires that milk. They don't know that in their mind, but they're desiring it. If so, be ye that have... If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have you tasted how gracious God is? Well, we are to have a longing, a desire for God's Word, and it will help us grow into a deeper relationship with Jesus. You know, Psalm 42 says this. It says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear? before God. Well, may we have that kind of hunger and that kind of thirst for God, like the psalmist. I I just, you know, I've always loved Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks. You know, I've I've taught this verse before, and I've said, you know, when, when a deer is panting for the water brooks, it's panting because it's been running away from somebody who's trying to, or some animal is trying to kill it and have it for lunch. And so, you know, that's what the enemy's doing at us, doing toward us every day. Trying to destroy us, trying to eat us up. Remember what Jesus said, the, you know, that the, the devil comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, right? So, uh, uh, John chapter 10, verses, verse 10. So, folks, don't you think it's critical, essential, necessary for us to eat God's Word and to hunger for it and to thirst for it. You know, in fact, how can we not have a hunger and thirst for His Word after we've tasted His grace? I mean, the Lord is truly, truly good. Well, let's close out verse 11 now. We've got to get back to Revelation. He said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So he's telling John, You must get this Word out, right? Even though he's already been told certain things he can't reveal... Nonetheless, he says, you must prophesy again about many peoples. Now, again, he just took the word in. He just devoured the word. So what is he going to do? Well, he's got to give the word out. So notice what John is supposed to be doing with the information that God has given him. He is to share it with others. He is to warn the people of the coming judgment uh, for disobedience. And he is also to give the blessed hope for obedience. And even today, John's words are read by many people. Look at, look at all the letters he writes. He wrote three letters. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation. John's words are being read by many people as he continues to warn the many people's nations, tongues, and kings. So we as Christians are to share the whole counsel of God. That is not only speaking of God's love, but also of His judgment that is to come. God is merciful, but He's also a righteous judge. Now as a pastor... It is great to hear that the brethren are doing well and walking with the Lord. But it breaks my heart to see brethren that are not walking with the Lord. They may say they're doing well, but there's no joy. And as you hear the things they are doing, you just want to shake them and wake them up to what they're doing. Hit them a few times. Get them in a headlock. Do what we used to do in school. Get one of these. 
There's lots of names for that, but I, I'm, I'm going to share. You want to do that? You know, you really can't do that, but all you can do is point them back to Jesus. Point them back to Jesus and pray for them. But you've got the Word. You've eaten it. You've devoured it. Share it with them. Share the love of Christ. It is the Lord. It is as the Lord said to Joshua as he was preparing to lead over three million people into the promised land. And this... Well, no, it's not going to be. Let me, let me share Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Notice. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. No, that means, doesn't mean that you're not to share the gospel. That means it's, it's, it's in you and a part of you. It's part of your tongue, you know. It's not to depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in a day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You know, people always ask, well, how am I going to be successful? Well, how about get into God's Word? And what's the measure of success anyway? The Bible says it's one thing. Obedience to God's Word. It is obedience to the Lord. That's the measure of success. Are you obeying God's Word or not? The only way you can obey God's Word is to know God's Word. So get into God's Word. So you see, the more that you devour God's Word, the more it will cut away the hardness in your heart, and God will fill you with compassion for others and spur you on to finish the race that you are in. And you will indeed be blessed. And I want to end with this scripture. No, I'm not going to end with this scripture. Man, I tell you what. I must have really kept writing today because there's more stuff here to share. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other an aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So we are to share our faith, live what we believe, Some will accept it, others will reject it. But the fragrance you leave behind, folks, listen carefully. I'm going to take a few more minutes beyond what we normally do, and I want you to take this home with you. The fragrance that you leave behind will represent what you have come into contact with. Can you understand that? I know you can't, but are you listening to me? The fragrance you leave behind will represent what you have come into contact with. If you come into contact with a skunk, what are you going to smell like? I can't stand skunk smell. You get on the road, you know, somebody hit, somebody hit a skunk five miles ahead of you, and you smell it. And then you smell it for another 15, 20 miles, right? You talk about an influential smell. So if you come into contact with a skunk, what are you going to smell like? I don't care how much cologne or perfume you may put on to cover the odor. You will still smell like a skunk. Not any of you. I hope. If you fill yourself with Jesus and with His Word, then His fragrance will come flowing from your life. If you fill your life with the things of this world, then that is what will flow from your life. And it will stink like a skunk. I'm thinking that's why God put skunks on this earth. To give us a little picture of what we smell like if we only go with the things of the world. And that's putting it bluntly, by the way. You'll stink. So remember this in closing. This is it now, honestly. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and powerful. The Word of God is alive, folks. It is alive. Just like Jesus is alive because He is the Logos of God. He is the Word of God. He's alive. 
For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I love the fact that it is a two-edged sword because with one sword it cuts open like a surgeon's scalpel, but with the other side it heals. It heals. The Bible says that Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. In effect, He came to heal us, the sinner. The Word of God has cut both ways for us. He's opened our hearts. He's done His surgery. He's removed sin and put it on the cross. And then He heals with His Word. What a beautiful Word. What a beautiful sword. What a beautiful heart that Christ has for us. Let's devour His Word and then let's share it with this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you.